Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Luke, chapter 22, our text begins this morning in verse number 47, 47 through 53. And again, for those of you who have been tracking with us as we go through Luke's Gospel here for pressing on three years... <laughs> Jesus has been teaching His disciples. Last week we considered Jesus in His time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is a part of the Mount of Olives. Jesus there. Also, in not only practicing and demonstrating prayer, but also instructing His own disciples. They need to pray. To be prepared. And Jesus has gone on three occasions and prayed alone. Time with His Father and he comes back to his disciples on this final occasion and just reminded here, just as he is still speaking to them, the quietness of this garden is broken. Because now the hour has come, the hour that Jesus has been speaking of, the hour when he will begin what's known as the Passion, although we were considered even last week as we saw him agonizing in the, prayer, in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayer that there was truly a beginning of Jesus' passion and His suffering there within the garden as He prayed. Prayed for God if it were possible to remove this cup, but if not, Your will be done. And the strengthening He received by the angel that was sent to Him there. So the hour has come as there is the arresting army of the the Roman legionaries and the Levitical temple police coming here. Estimates of the group that actually came in this arresting party, if you include those who were, were part of the Roman army, those who have come from the chief priest and the elders, and then just those who want to come and see what's happening, of a party of at least, at least 200 has come. So let's begin reading here in verse Number 47 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, again ending through verse, verse 53. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed, healed him. Then Jesus came to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come against Him. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on Me. But this hour and the power of darkness are Yours. So we come here to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there is this this great convergence, isn't there? It's all beginning to come together here. The great convergence of parties and 
parties with different agendas, parties with different purposes. Some of the purposes and some of the goals of those who are coming together here are closely intertwined. In fact, you can see, for example, that Judas on the one hand and his goal and his design closely intertwined with that of the chief priest and the scribes and the elders so they can come together. But there are also some conflicting goals some conflicting purposes in these groups that are coming together, we would certainly say that there's a, great, there's a great contrast between what the disciples of Jesus would desire to see accomplished here and what those who have come to arrest Jesus desire to accomplish. So there is a confliction of goals taking place here. So with all that's going on, all these parties coming together, all advancing their own agenda, their own goals, their purposes. The question would have to be asked then, whose purposes, whose goal will be accomplished? Who in this time of convergence, coming together, who is really in control? Well, to some degree, the purpose of each party is fulfilled. But all that is even within the context of one overruling divine purpose. And that is God's purpose being accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ, even through the hands of these men who have come against Him. So I want that to be our focus today as we, as we look at this text. And it's a theme that we've considered in various places in Luke before. But this, uh, this issue of the sovereignty of God and the plans of men. What's being accomplished here? Who is, in fact, in control? And we come to the joyful conclusion and the biblical conclusion that ultimately God is in control. That God is directing all the affairs of men for His purposes, for His designs. And so as the people of God, that we can rest assured of that. Rest assured that His work is being accomplished, not only here, but as we trust to relate what we see in this, that God's will is being accomplished even in our own lives today. So let's see, first of all, Jesus to those who are pretentious, to the pretentious fraud. Certainly the party that seems to take the lead here, and in fact, in the particular Bible that I have here, verse 47 is broken from verse 46 with the title, Jesus Betrayed by Judas. That's kind of the subtitle this this section of Scripture is given. Now here is Jesus, I mean Judas, Judas would certainly takes the place of take the place of prominence here as the man with a plan and it's being carried out, isn't it? He has already gone to the enemies of Jesus, gone to the chief priests, and he's prearranged with them a way to betray Christ and also to gain from it. Have silver put into his pockets. 
Judas is the one who knows where Jesus is likely to be found at this hour on this evening. We're reminded in verse 39 of this chapter, says that Jesus, speaking of Jesus, He came out and proceeded as was His custom to the Mount of Olives. And again in particular to the Garden of Gethsemane there. Jesus simply practiced as He always did. And He knew that Judas knew. And so Judas was one who, he, he knew where Jesus could be found. And it's Judas who is spoken of here in verse 47 while Jesus is speaking. The crowd comes and the one called Judas. Leading the way. Judas preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. Judas, as again identified here in verse 47 so clearly, and it is interesting that in the gospel accounts, I don't know that all four of the gospel writers do, but I know at least three of them make reference here. When he speaks of Judas here, they emphasize again Judas, one of the twelve. Judas had a place that was uncommon. Judas had a place that was not offered to just anyone. Judas was one of the twelve. And so Judas is one who is able to gain close proximity to Jesus. He's able to walk into this garden where Jesus is. Able to walk in perhaps somewhat nonchalant, somewhat carelessly, casually. And he's able to get close enough to Jesus. So close that he can kiss him. So you look at this, and you would certainly say that here's the man who's in control. He's got, he's got it all figured out. He has every advantage. He knows the people. He knows the place. He knows the time. He is in control here. And we don't know, and I don't want to wildly speculate here, on everything that was going on in the mind of Judas. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot. But let me suggest to you that by the appearance of things, that Judas has in mind that he is going to betray Jesus in a way that clears himself of any suspicion. He doesn't come into the garden to Jesus pointing His finger, does He? There He is. Get Him! It seems that He has this mindset that He can betray Jesus in such a way and approach Jesus and speak to Him and kiss Him on His cheek. And in Matthew and Mark's Gospel, the Greek could even be rendered that he's, it's more than just one kiss, that He's, that he's lavishing some kisses upon Christ. And that some way, somehow, Jesus will not suspect what Judas has in fact done. He has, again, perhaps the appearance of one who has unwillingly led an arresting party. So Judas is seeking for the way to come out of this betrayal of Jesus saving His face 
but also money in hand. And perhaps, just in case, you know, maybe he's covered himself for that other possibility that if somehow Jesus does come out of this and Jesus comes out the winner, Jesus comes out on top, and that those who have come against Jesus are crushed and put down, that perhaps Judas will not be suspected. So whatever happens, he comes out looking good. But then Judas, uh, Jesus says to Judas in verse 48, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Those words that to Judas that indicate that Jesus is fully aware of what Judas is doing. That your betrayal that you want to hide under this cloak of affection and loyalty by, by kissing. I know what you're doing, Judas. And are you going to come into even this moment where that which you've desired to accomplish is finally coming to a head? This betrayal, you've got your money in your pocket. What you've agreed to do is now being done. I'm arrested. And you're coming to this moment with a kiss? Would you kiss the Son of Man? Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? How arrogant, how daring, how foolish you are. So Jesus reveals it. His plan is known. He exposes the wickedness of what He's doing You want to betray me and you're pretending to have affection and love toward me. So, is Judas' plan accomplished? We can say, yes. What he's laid out is followed through here. He's meeting the conditions that are required of him for him to receive the payment that he's already received. Jesus is arrested. But... It seems to be, to some degree, unraveling. If there was, and again, it's somewhat speculative, so I won't, I won't push this, but if there was in the design of Judas to come out with Jesus not suspecting him, he's lost that. He is exposed as the betrayer, Jesus lets him know that he knows what he is doing. But also, any sense of perceived satisfaction that Judas was going to have from this begins to diminish. You know, somewhere along the line, again, we don't know all the details, but somewhere along the line, Judas decided that Jesus was worth more to him by betrayal than by following him. That Jesus was 30 pieces of silver 
was worth more than anything else Jesus had to offer. So he made, he made that choice somewhere. We don't know how it was made. But there has to be in, that, in his thinking somewhere, some way, this is the best thing to do and I'll come out at least with some money in my pocket. But this sense of satisfaction is dwindling. And in fact... We read from Matthew chapter 27, the verses 3 and following. By the next morning, it's completely gone because G- Judas goes with the money. He goes to the chief priest and the elders and he just throws the money before them. And he says this, I've betrayed innocent blood. He couldn't enjoy that 30 pieces of silver. And in fact, he couldn't even enjoy life as he realized to some measure of what he had done. Now it wasn't a it wasn't a repentance, a, a full repentance of what he had done. He realized he betrayed an innocent man. He didn't have any clue evidently that he had betrayed the Son of God. He wasn't ready to make that confession. So his conscience begins carrying that guilt of betraying innocent blood. So is Judas' will, is his plan fulfilled? Yes, to a degree, but what he had planned beyond that didn't take place, did he? Whatever he had imagined, whatever measure of satisfaction, whatever measure of, of peace and comfort he would experience for having betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, that didn't take place. But God's plan, was God's plan accomplished here? And of course, the answer to that is yes. Yes. God's plan as revealed even in the Scriptures of the one who would betray Him. God's plan fulfilled. His Scripture fulfilled. Even in one who is a pretentious fraud, God's will is accomplished. So a reminder to any any who would adorn only the appearance of Christianity, but not truly His, not truly one who belongs to God in Christ. The name of Christ being carried, Christianity embraced as, Ju- as Judas did here for personal gain. What can I get from this? I will follow Jesus in so long as I am benefiting from it, as long as I see it to be an asset to me. And many who today would bear the name of Christ and bear the name of Christianity, some for the sake of of social reputation. I mean, we do still live in what's called the Bible Belt here, don't we? It's expected to some degree that most people around here are in church somewhere this morning. And people, people who run for office, they don't even hesitate to put it on, on their little campaign sheets. Oh, I'm a lifelong member or a deacon or whatever the case may be of such and such church. Why? Because in this society, it still it speaks to some degree to some people as being important. It's a social reputation. 
Others who embrace the name of Christ and who embrace Christianity simply because they are drawn to it and attracted to it by the moral ethic that it presents. Quite frankly, I know it's not always the case, but quite frankly, by and large, Christians are pretty nice people to hang around with. I like to hang around that kind of people. They generally are nice to you. And some people are drawn to the name of Christ and will yield, take the name of Christianity upon themselves because they're very comfortable with the, with the ethic and with the social circle that they, they fall into if they identify themselves as such. But the sad reality is that in the case of so many, there has been no transformation of heart, no transformation of life by the Spirit of God. The question is not, do you go to church? The question is not, do you call yourself a Christian? The question is this, have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Has God done a transforming work within you? Have you been changed from old creature to new creature in Christ Jesus? That's the question to be answered. when there is no genuine or true love for Jesus Christ, there is no concern for the glory of God. Really, there's merely the external pretense of following after Christ and a willingness to take the name of Christ upon themselves, but there is nothing in the life that indicates it's genuine. Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? You know, you could take so many who in Christian circles are comfortable, you take them, if you could take them and pluck them up from a Christian society and you lay them down in another society that is dominated by another religion, they would fit there just as well. Just give them time to adapt. If you take a Christian from a Christian culture and you set him down in another culture that's influenced or controlled by another religion, he will not fit. He will not conform because of the work of the Spirit of God within him. Let me ask you, is Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ your supreme affection? Do you love Him more than you love anything, anyone else? Is Jesus Christ your life? And if you've nothing else but Him, that's enough. Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Say, well, Pastor, you're preaching to the choir this morning. (laughs) I hope so. I hope. That as I look out across this congregation and I see and know most all of you. That I see people that I can am reasonably confident are converted. But I will not make that assumption. I will not make that assumption. And particularly when I see our children. Children 
being raised in Christian homes, being raised in the context of the church. I know the dangers of that because that's how I grew up. And God saved a self-righteous Pharisee when I was 15 years old. Have you been born again? Has there been a transformation of your heart? Or have you fooled yourself and everyone around you? If there be any, the Christianity is simply a pretend activity. Realize this. this God knows. God knows it. Just as Jesus knew Judas. He knows what's going on. He knows what's real. He knows what's genuine. He knows the heart of man. He knows the heart of the individual. Remove the mask. Plead for His mercy. Because God's will, God's plan shall be accomplished. Even through you. Let it be by your salvation. The will of God has been accomplished through evil men. Think of Pharaoh. God says, I raised him up for this purpose. Think of the brothers of Moses. They intended evil. God intended what they did. The very acts that they performed for good. God will accomplish His will through each of us. Let it be by salvation. Let that be God's will accomplished in me. Lord, transform one more heart. Do that work of conversion one more time in this heart and this life. And Lord, don't let me be one who stands before you and says, Lord, Lord, have I not done this and this and this? And you look and say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I do not know you. Which Jesus says will take place. I don't want to be in that company. Secondly, to those who are malicious, the malicious foes of Christ. And there were those. To one extent, Judas seems to be in the lead role here. But on the other hand, you can look at it from the standpoint of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. All Judas is, is he's the pawn in their hands. You know, they've got the plan. They have finally found some way to get into that inner circle. One of Jesus' own disciples. This is the real power. These are the ones that are calling the shots. They've searched until they have found a way. They have the wheels in motion to be done with Jesus once and for all. Just as they have wanted to do. So here comes, excuse me, here they come into this garden, getting what they've come for. They've come to arrest Jesus, and it's done. They have the sufficient manpower. They have the Roman cohort, according to John 18, verses 3. 
And they come in the cloak of darkness. There's a little bit of protection and safety in that. Their plan being done. But Jesus gives these guys perspective too, doesn't He? In verse 52, Jesus said to the chief priest and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against Him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? Look and look at what you guys are. Just look in the mirror. Look at how you're acting. You're coming out after me with swords and clubs, just like any common robber who's got a, a band of of men with him and are going to co- and take you on. Verse fifty-three. While I was with you daily in the temple. You did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. What's he saying here? First thing he's saying to him is this. Your time is limited. You look at what's going on here, guys. Look at what you're doing. Yes, accomplishing what, what's in your heart. Arrest and ultimately leading to the death of Jesus Christ. He says, listen, your time is limited. He says the very last part of verse 53. This hour. This hour. Of course, he's speaking of more than a literal 60 minutes here. He's speaking of this, this period of time as is manifested even now in this garden, it's yours. But, it's only an hour. It's only a short time. Do not think that you, in all of your cleverness, and all of your cunning, it's finally paid off. You finally got the upper hand. Don't think that. You have a very short window here. And what you're going to do is accomplish exactly what God has said will take place. And you're going to accomplish what God has decreed will take place. This time is a time that is given to you. This opportunity for you to come and to exert the appearance of authority and power over me, over Christ, is given to you. And there were prior times when you couldn't do this. You remember the times? There were some times they were ready to take Jesus out and stone Him. Ready to take Him and throw Him off of a cliff. What happened? One occasion He just simply went through their midst. This time is given. When the prior times, they were not given to you. And He reminds them day by day in the temple. Guys, you've seen me in the temple day after day after day. Why didn't you arrest me then? Because you couldn't. Because you couldn't. It wasn't the time. Why didn't you lay hands on me then? Because it wasn't the time. That's why, ultimately, is what he's saying here. 
Day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But then he says this, this hour and the power of darkness. What else is he saying here? He's saying to them, your deeds are evil. He equates with them the power of darkness as opposed to God who is light. The power of darkness certainly a reference to the demonic and satanic kingdom. Your deeds are evil. You come in the cloak of darkness because your deeds are evil and you dare not perpetrate such an action in the light of day. You wouldn't dare. Look at what you're doing. You know it and I know it. It's evil. The purposes and the plans of Jesus' enemies all again within God's ultimate purpose. The power, this hour and the power of darkness or are yours only because it's been given to you by God Himself. And in, we see in Acts chapter 2 and there the, when Peter speaks of the arrest, those things, the wicked deeds of men all according to the predetermined plan of God. So to those who oppose Christ, and there are those, are there not? Those who are filled with hatred and reject the gospel, reject the Christian message, reject the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. Listen, if there be any such as that, then they're better to fight against the wind and to fight against the rising of the sun than to fight against God. At least if you fight against the wind and you fight against the sun, you bring no harm to yourself. You fight against God, you bring eternal damnation to your soul. To resist the purposes and the plans of God is absurd. You can't do it. And that those who would dare, and there are those who would lift the fist of defiance against God. Why? In Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage against the anointed? You live in opposition to God, you live in opposition to His Christ. Still, you're accomplishing His purposes. And the destruction of your own soul. So the message of the church to any who would proclaim themselves as enemies of God, enemies of Christ. The message is the same as been all men. The message is always the same. Repent. Call men. Call women to repentance. Call them to turning away from a heart of, re- of rebellion against God. Call them to turn in obedience to Christ. Call them, if nothing else, to cry out for the mercies of God. That if your hearts are truly as hardened as they seem to be, that God would show them that. God would bring them from that and to Himself. You know, God is able to bring salvation to those who are the enemies of God. How do I know that? Well, we've got the scriptural example. We've got Saul. 
the enemy of God, destroying, persecuting the church. And God works salvation in His heart. But we also have the testimony of Romans 5 that while we were the enemies of God, (laughs) folks, God has always worked salvation in His enemies because there's nobody else to choose from. Only the enemies of God can be saved. So that it's not a lost cause when we when we see someone and, and I go there, man, this person will never get it. This person will never see the gospel. If it's up to me, they won't. But God is able. And so we call men and women to repentance. We call them to faith in Christ. Because we still believe in the foolishness of preaching, we still believe, we still believe in the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. It's not the messenger, it's the message sent forth by the Spirit of God. So there may be those who we would say, man, they're just they're just vicious toward Christianity and everything in it. May God be merciful to their souls. And in many cases he is. Aren't you glad that God is merciful to enemies? I am. It's what I was, an enemy of God. That's what you were. While we were yet His enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. And those, finally here, we see the words to the, to the impetuous follower, the disciples of Jesus. Were theirs. Those who would, they would defend Jesus. They would be those that were counted as His own, the remaining eleven. What was their plan? The plan of the disciples seems to be somewhat impromptu. Whatever the moment calls for, we're going to do. But the reality is, we know from last week, as we considered Jesus praying in the garden, and He told the disciples to watch and pray, and they fell asleep. They didn't watch and pray. The reality is, they didn't prepare. They weren't ready for this. They weren't ready for what was about to take place. And so here the arresting party arrives and the disciples are ready to fight. Somebody says, aha! Aha! That's what Jesus meant when He said, you need to get a sword. And they latched on to those words there. We looked at that back in verse 38. They said, Lord, Lord, look, here are two swords in the upper room. Just didn't get it. They latched on to what Jesus said about in verse 36 about having a money belt and having a bag, and whoever has no sword to sell it, his coat and to buy one. He's not talking about you need to have a literal sword, he's just talking about be prepared to live by the ordinary means in this world. But they got two swords, and so somebody, Peter here, it seems, is ready to swing it. You know, you think about that. What kind of a guy is this anyway? They've got probably two swords among them. They've got a crowd with clubs and swords of at least 200. And here's Peter ready to come. It comes out swinging. You know, it says in the other accounts that, that they ask, well, Lord, do we, do we need to take out our swords and fight? And before they got an answer, 
Take out our swords and why fight? <laughs> but something else has happened here too, John tells us. When the arresting party came, Jesus asked, Who are you looking for? He said, We're looking for Jesus. He says, What did he say? I am. What happened? Everybody fell back. I just wonder if perhaps Peter didn't think, Hey, this is going to happen. Two swords is all we really need. All Jesus says is, I am. And everybody is on the ground. This is going to be pretty easy. This is the Messiah coming in His power, in His glory, in His kingdom. So he's ready to swing. And so somewhere he's going for the head, takes it off an ear. And Jesus rebukes him. And he undoes the damage, healing this servant's ear. His rebuke, as recorded in Matthew 26, read earlier, that Jesus says, Guys, don't you know that I could appeal to my Father and He could send twelve legions of angels, a legion is approximately twelve, is approximately a thousand soldiers, twelve thousand angels. All I've got to do is say, Father, send them. Do you know this battle isn't about this? This isn't the way we're going to do things here. So these disciples who slept, rested physically, ready for a sword fight, but prayerless disciples nonetheless, they're not ready to suffer. What do you mean we don't fight? This is a group here that's arresting Jesus And we're not going to try to fight here. What are we going to do? Plan B doesn't look very good to us. Plan B looks like Jesus and us are going to be arrested. I don't like that plan. Plan C is run. And that's what they did. They fled. Can... Such cowardice be used in God's scheme of things. Well, according to Matthew twenty six thirty one, it fulfilled the scriptures from Zechariah thirteen seven. That I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Scripture Again, fulfilled. But also an opportunity for the grace of God to be displayed because Jesus, after His death and His burial and His resurrection, who does He go to? Who does He spend His time with? He goes back and He reclaims and He restores these eleven. He didn't get beyond the grave and say, All right, guys, you blew it. I'm starting over. Twelve new guys. He demonstrates his grace and he restores these disciples to their place. And we see the beginning of God using them greatly at Pentecost and beyond the book of Acts, don't we?
can God have a place in this scheme, His scheme for such cowardice? And the answer is yes. Number one, it fulfills the Scripture. He knows it's coming. But number two, it, it demonstrates His grace when He restores these men. I'm glad that God has a place for cowards. Because <laughs> I've turned yellow on a lot of occasions. I've failed the test of faith. And rather than stand the ground and endure suffering, I've turned and run. You know, it's often easier to find Christian fighters than followers who are willing to suffer. You know, you can find Christians that are ready to... Every cause that comes along, man, take up the cause, take up the sword, ready to fight. Not many who are willing just to suffer for righteousness' sake. You know, we live in a culture that's sometimes it's difficult to, to know because of the because of the influence and the benefits we receive in living in a in a society and under a government that's been largely influenced by biblical principles. But our cause, our cause, our ultimate cause is never the hope of the establishing God's kingdom in the United States of America. It's not our cause. And we need wisdom. You know, when you can, you can find those who say, Christians, you need to take up the cause here on this issue or this issue. And sometimes, Christians, you need to understand you're called here to suffer. Now, some of those lines are not easily drawn. I understand that. And we need wisdom. We need the grace of God. But it's easy to find somebody who's ready to swing a sword for the cause of Christ when Christ wants you and calls you to suffer. Instead, you know, I get emails from from different organizations, and you know, it's all a lot of them are about you know Christians doing this and signing this petition and or emailing this company and all. And I, I do some of that. I don't do all of it. Some of that I don't think I don't think it's appropriate. Some of it I don't think. What's the you think? Then I think the reality is, how in the world do you expect the heathen people to act? You expect them to act like us? I'm afraid that sometimes we're too easily moved by nothing more than a than a cause that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And it has nothing to do with advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a church, as individuals, you may feel like you need to do some of these things. Fine. But don't call upon the church. The reason I'm very careful here about even what I call upon us as a church congregation to engage ourselves and participate in. I think there are some things that are very clear. But there are the times that as the people of God that we are called to suffer for Christ's sake, to lay the sword down. 
and to realize that there is something in the sword mentality that's very appealing to the flesh and to guard against our own hearts in that. I'd rather fight than suffer many times. And then just the reality is like these disciples not only willing to fight but not to suffer. Just sometimes we just don't get it, do we? (laughs) You know, we just just blow it. That's what these disciples show us. They just didn't get it. And I have... In my study through Gospel of Luke, I have tempered my abuse on the disciples <laughs> because I see a lot of me in these guys. When you start making applications, like, hey, yeah, that's kind of like, it's kind of like me. But even when we absolutely blow it, the times that we just, we don't get it, to rest assured that God's purposes are done. You know, there is some comfort and they're in the truth that if God can use the deeds of wicked men and God can accomplish His purpose through those who are set in direct opposition against Him, there is some comfort in knowing that surely, surely He can accomplish His purposes through what are sometimes the misguided actions of His own people. Sometimes misguided, well-intentioned. So often, you know, I can look at something and I, I can see while well, I've blown it. And I'm not talking about I don't need to feel the weight of sin. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm just talking about with the best of intentions, I can look back later and say, I, I, I made a mistake there. That was the wrong thing to do there. And look at all the fallout now. I've blown it for God. I've blown it for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> And if God can do what He does through His enemies, there's some comfort in what He can do through His people. And carefully I say this, but even what God can do when His people sin. Now that's not to justify. Don't think I'm in any way communicating, yeah, go out and sin so the grace of God will be shown. That's not what I'm saying. But the reality is we need to have some assurance that even when I do something as grievous as sin against God, that God's not lost control. That the kingdom of God is not coming toppling in, caving in because of what I've done. And that He does that gracious work of restoration. How many times this week... Have you been restored? If you're a child of God, I hope you can say, oh, many times. (laughs) Because how many times have you sinned? And you've gone to God in brokenness and repentance, and He has restored you. So even to those like us, the impetuous the impulsive follower 
just stupid. That's what I told the Lord the other day. I said, Lord, I'm just stupid. I just need you to make it plain. Now, I don't get into this mentality of, you know, something happens, somebody says, oh, the Lord must be trying to tell me something. I just, Lord, if you got something to say, say it plain. <laughs> and He knows how to do that, doesn't He? He knows how to make His way clear. Because He knows I am I'm blind. I'm deaf. I'm dumb. can't hear. My brain doesn't work right. My heart's not always right. People like that. His Word is to us. His will is accomplished. Isn't that great? His purposes are accomplished. God is still in control. Folks, such a God. Such a God who can accomplish His will to those who are the pretentious followers, to those who are the malicious enemies of of His kingdom, to those who are the impetuous a God who can accomplish all of His purposes, His will through that. He is a God who is deserving of our allegiance, deserving of our service, deserving of our worship. And listen, it is absolute and utter folly, utter foolishness to attempt to think you can work against God. What a fool. What a fool. And even the frail follower can rest assured God's will is done. May we find comfort in those truths today. Father, we give thanks to You that You are the Lord who is sovereign. And so many times that we are obsessed and short-sighted and we see simply the affairs and the deeds of men and we panic. We become alarmed or we see even our own shortcomings and we are cast down in despair. Lord, we come as the psalmist. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. Hope in God. And Lord, we thank you that the hope that we have is a sure and a certain hope that you are one who is sovereign. And Lord, take these truths and give them, give them the balance that they need in each of our hearts. That we can go from one extreme to the other on some of these truths. But make the application by your Spirit to the hearts to our hearts today, as is needed. Lord, anything that is merely of my own ingenuity, my own thinking, that is not consistent with Your Word, I ask that You'd simply take those thoughts from us, that we might dwell upon truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.